Hello, Dennis. Hello, Jesse. We are back with Sacrosanctum Cachulium. Absolutely. And we have uh, new Patreon supporters. Yes, who also loves Sacrosanctum Cachulium. I'm sure they do. They wouldn't listen to the podcast if they didn't. But shout out to Kent and Linda Bergman. Yes. You two signed up for the uh, t-shirt and pint class uh, reward for the Patreon. Now, you're only getting one pint class, so I figured this out already. Linda, you're going to have the pint class on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And Kent, you could have it Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So there you go with that. Happy wife, happy life. Happy wife, happy life. And and I hope you put beer in it because beer is delicious. Happy liturgy, happy life with Sacra Sanctum Cajillion. So without further ado, episode nine of season three of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Okay, guys, we're back. Chris is making a lot of blah, blah noises today, if you notice. We we are back, back at it again, reading through this amazing document. By the way, Sacrosanctum Concilium. Chris told me right before this recording that he thinks you guys are all very bored right now. Yeah, because we can't talk about Vatican II for more than one podcast. So this is what we're going to do. If you think that you're not bored listening to this and you actually like listening to this, email Chris. I'm going to give you his personal (laughs) email address. No, email me at liturgy, questions at liturgyguys.com, and I will forward all of your complaints to him about not being bored. Yes. So and, send, and you, a, send if, a lot of them you, in. What if you are bored listening to Then the, don't do the anything. Yeah. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> then send emails to Jesse. Then just be bored, but don't say anything about yeah. it. Okay? I mean, what are we talking? We're talking about the central mysteries of yeah. salvation, the yeah. most important church document of the century. That being said, the world ever, I, ever, ever. That being said, I have a couple of things I need to do. So you guys get started. I'll be back <laughs> a little bit. Later. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Class, we're, we're at, anyone, uh, anyone, anyone. No, I grew up on Long Island. Economics. So I think we should talk about Vatican II with a New York accent the whole time. Uh, so we're, now we're doing yeah. the Ocho, right? Yeah, we're right here at uh, paragraph eight. Yeah. I don't even know if I could do that. What? Your best accent is your Pope Benedict accent, though. Yeah, for sure. Very, very much. I'm so glad to see you here. We're here to talk about paragraph eight of the earthly liturgy. We take part in the Isn't fortis. Isn't that good? It's a heavenly That's liturgy. so good. Spot well, on. Well, I don't know. That's just kind of how he talks, though. I remember mm-hmm. when he was elected Pope, I was watching it on EWTN, and they had an interview with him that he gave, and I was like, that's what he sounds like? This little... Mm-hmm. This is Very this meek. Guy? Yeah. All right, so what are we talking about? The four taste. The five taste. No, eight taste. Wait, number eight. Number eight is in the earthly liturgy, we take part in a foretaste of the heavenly liturgy, which is celebrated in the holy city of Jerusalem, toward which we journey as pilgrims. Oh, that's a lot of good stuff in Woo. there. That's not only the first half of the sentence. Tell me about all that, Chris. Well, what it, I won't tell you about all that, but what I see here in paragraphs five through eight, again, imagine you're in a classroom. You know, every every teacher has his like uh, his go-to diagram, right? You know, like I've I've sketched this on the whiteboard like a 
thousand times. Yeah, Dennis the, is the economy the Trinity, of salvation, and then there's a little body. So you got you got you draw this little triangle up there, right? For Trinity, Father, mm-hmm. Son, Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. and then you have this exitus, this creation from the hands of God, going through the old covenant. So, you know, sending eventually the incarnate Christ, who establishes the church who sends out the apostles to go uh, continue the work of salvation in the liturgy, which is made present in signs and sacraments, and everything is returning back to heaven. So you imagine you've got the Trinity, and then you've got this coming from the Trinity, this circle that has exited the Trinity at the kind of the bottom point is the cross, and now everything is returning back so to heaven. When Jesse dropped, Jesse dropped Ike on the floor the other day, and he's like crying, the baby's crying. Oh, like, I dropped Mike and Ike. Mike dropped Ike and <laughs> Ike's crying. Jesse like came down with his hands. It was like, I will pick you up and then kind of schmoopy kissed him and then brought him back to himself. Okay. So yeah, I didn't drop bad. him. He actually just fell, but yes, I did. Well, yeah. Like Adam and Eve fell. Yeah. That's and <laughs> then you reached down, said, I am coming to pick you up, save you, rescue you, kiss you, love you and bring you back to myself. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. I th- the, there's this line uh, somewhere in the catechism, St. Irenaeus, it says, uh, God, the Son and God, the Holy Spirit are the two creative hands of God, the Father. It's always mentioned, like, the image I use is the, the father teaching his kid, like Lars, how to ride a bike. So you take the training wheels off. That's Lawrence for all of you who don't speak Karstenese. You got the father and you got the son and the Holy Spirit, left hand, right hand. And then you got your child and you're just kind of steering him. You're guiding him so he doesn't go into traffic or hit a tree until he comes all the way safely back to his heavenly home. And if he falls off the bike, you You look at his wounds and you... You put salve or salvation or balm him. Yeah, good. Boom. Yeah. Okay, so paragraph eight is kind of the the last chapter of this exitus, reditus, this creation from Trinity back to returning in the Trinity. Right. So we, it's not just a kind of thing that God does for us as we wait around for the priest to do priestly things, but we're partaking in this foretaste of the heavenly liturgy, which is in heavenly Jerusalem. In other words, we're actually participating through signs and symbols in the heavenly worship as it exists around the throne of God in heaven. And so that's why we keep talking about liturgy is a thing that's not created in the moment, but it's a revelation of that which pre-exists us. So imagine you have the most perfect performance of a Shakespeare play on a video somewhere, and you want to do that for your high school. You might say to the kids, hey, go watch that play and do it like they did it, right? How do you sacramentalize that, that perfection of the singing of an aria? Well, you imitate Maria Callas or whoever might have been uh, singing that way. Who's Maria Callas? She's a great opera singer. Not that, that great no, if I've never heard of her. That has nothing to do with being really a millennial. listen to Nickelback. <laughs> yeah, do you know what I said to... Uh, Nickelback, 50 Cent, all of the change artists. Jesse wants to... Being a millennial is no excuse for ignorance. That's how you go. <laughs> um, I am a zenial, so thank you very much. Well, whatever you are. So anyway, the heavenly reality isn't... It's not just copying, it's not just a play. It's actually sharing and participating in that reality by making it knowable on earth. So that's the foretaste in the heavenly Jerusalem to which we journey as pilgrims. Okay. So there's a lot of that language. We talk about being pilgrim church on our pilgrim journey, but usually that just means we feel good as we go somewhere together. But what does it, what does it mean to be a pilgrim? Um, that means you're on a journey that has an, uh, a desired outcome. Right. So the wizard of Oz, they are pilgrims to the Emerald city. Sure. And they can always see it. And there's a foretaste of it when they look at the horizon. They can always see the Emerald City. And there's various things in the way, you know, the flying monkeys and the Wicked Witch and all that stuff. 
just like the demons come at us to try to keep us from getting to our destination. But when we get there, it's not a bad guy behind the curtain. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. It's a good guy behind the curtain. Right. It is Christ well, sitting at the right hand of God. He's not behind the curtain God. anymore. He he's behind the veil. The and veil, more, the veil has been torn. Oh, my gosh. And he's called a minister. Perfect allegory. A minister of the Holy of Holies and the true tabernacle. Right. So Christ is in the heavenly realm, the minister of the true Holy of Holies, behind that veil, which is was his body, which has now been torn. So we sing a hymn to the Lord's glory with all the warriors of the heavenly army. Well, think about the next time you sing, pick a hymn. Does it sound like something you could be singing with the heavenly army? Or is it just something about yourself? We are called, we are chosen. We are, we are, we are, we are, right? Yeah, I mean, it should not be, it should be something that exemplifies, yeah. Yeah, it'd be great to write a hymn on these words. So musicians out there, write a hymn based on paragraph eight of Sacrosanct Concilium. Say, we are singing with the warriors of the heavenly army, venerating the memory of the saints, and we hope for fellowship with them. So, Here's something I learned at the uh, Liturgical Institute's uh, Summer Transfigured Conference. You learned something? I did. did you go there to will the be another one this year in July. I did. What I learned is, uh, and it's relevant here actually, is um, the oldest verse in scripture is the word. Do you know what it is? This is what I learned. Like the text that is actually yes, the, the first the, known the, text. The consensus thinks is the oldest ever. Right, because Genesis isn't the earliest, even no. though it's first in the Bible, because they wrote it down after a long war. Or maybe it's, this is not the oldest. Uh, I can't remember where I put it, but it's it's Exodus 15, 1, I think it is. It's just after they cross the Red Sea. Mm. It's the hymn of Miriam. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? Uh, Praise the Lord, for he is gloriously triumphant. Horse and chariot he is cast into the, the sea. sea. Yeah, yeah, Father Karchi. And then I heard somebody else say this too, that that's believed mm. to be the old text. Now, what are they singing in heaven? Praise the Lord for he is good. Horse and charity is cast into the sea. Revelation 15.1-ish says that this is what the, the warriors of the heavenly army are singing, this, uh, this canticle of, the, of, of uh, Miriam, um, this same verse. That Since is fascinating. The Lord, he's gloriously triumphant. So the beginning Horse and charity and is end. cast into the sea. Hmm. Right, so all the evil. So play of chariots of fire. Representative. <laughs> so all those horses and chariots representing, you know, Egypt or the things that are hostile to right worship, right? So demons or whatever, cast into the sea, which the sea is brings death and destruction. Actually, yeah, you know, chariots of fire. It reminds me of uh, of uh, Elijah, Mayor Winningham, right? Elijah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if chariots of fire has anything to do with Elijah or not, but how did Elijah uh, end his time on earth? In a fiery chariot. Right. And so, but there's this line that is really cool before he gets taken up into the fiery chariot. So he's walking down from, I think, from north to south along the east side of the Jordan in the land of uh, yeah, Moab. I'm familiar. And so before he gets taken up into the fiery chariot, he's going to cross the Jordan River to go into the promised land. So he takes off his mantle and he rolls it up and he smacks the Jordan River. And all of a sudden it stops and it parts. And then he, Elijah, and Elisha, they cross over into the promised land, and that's when the fiery chariot, the chariot of fire, comes down and what? takes Elijah. Is that real life? I mean, well, yeah, it's, yeah. it's in the Bible. That's great. <laughs> so, but no, it's the themes are the same. You know, this this passing over, passing over, passing mm-hmm. over, passing over these bodies. Of, I mean, that's that's the theme of salvation history. That's the theme of the liturgy. This crossover, this Passover from fallen earth to heavenly glory. I do the same thing when I'm at a family party and there's all these little kids in my way. I take my cloak and I slap it on the ground and all the kids run away. And, and they, I can walk and right through. Open line right to yeah. the uh, cooler. 
<laughs> okay. Anyway, this is still paragraph eight, which is uh, we really are only going to get yeah. through two. Yeah, remember, send your emails to uh, <laughs> to Chris. But but what are we saying here? Yes, the liturgy is all these things at once. We're partaking in the heavenly Jerusalem. We see the angels and the saints. We're singing with them. We remember them in the earthly liturgy. We wait for a fellowship to take part in that same worship with them. And we wait for the second coming of Christ to come and we'll appear with him in glory. That's the end of paragraph eight. So this is all the stuff that liturgy is about. And if you just call it the earthly community meal of this local church, you're just missing a lot of the stuff. Yeah. This is kind of the, let me put it, the, the scaffolding beneath the liturgy that you're seeing. This is this is the real substance that's standing beneath it and supporting what's exactly. going on. So why is the priest wearing a glorious chasuble? Because he's wearing the garment of salvation of Christ resurrected to standing at the right hand Obvi. of the Father. Why is the music dignified and elevated and heavenly? Because that's what's being sung in heaven. Why is the church building look like it's full of angels and saints? Because they are members of that liturgical participation as well. Why does it have all this eschatological glory? Because it's a foretaste of the time when the heavenly realities take possession of the world. Theological stuff. Why does it have in a, chapter eight a cry room? Because my kids <laughs> kick and scream all during mass. Well, that's because they're not yet fully oh, conformed right. to the eschatological reality. Got it. In the catechism, when it asks who celebrates the liturgy, it says God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and then the second category of celebrants are the Great Mother of God, God, the hierarchy of angels, the hundred forty-four thousand, the new creation, the prophets, the martyrs, the virgins, and then the third category, the third and final category of liturgical participants is even us. Is us. Yeah. <laughs> is us. Is that what it so, says? Even us? Even us. Basically, <laughs> it is in this eternal liturgy that we participate when we celebrate the sacrament. I liturgy. often hear this phrase like even Jesse. So like <laughs> even Jesse. <laughs> even Jesse. We're so, gonna go again, to the... if, you, if you're not see if, if you get there and you're just seeing you and your neighbor, but you're not seeing the heavenly army and you're not seeing the trinity as the primary actors in this thing then you're not seeing the liturgy clearly this is why jesus had to be a god man right so that these heavenly things could be knowable in and through the sensate world and so you know even us is actually kind of true even us we on this earth using all this fallen yet still good material of the world can make known what's going on around the throne of god in heaven he is the pontifex maximus and we are the pontifices minimi <laughs> We're little priests. <laughs> you have a mini me. Mini me. Lars, Lars is your mini me. Yeah. You should see Lars's beard. It's kind of but, a it's a little beard. <laughs> yeah, but that, that that's, that's truly it. We are co-operators in the priestly act. Without the the primary priest, the great pontifex, uh, we couldn't do it. Exactly. Yet. Vatican II continues, how the liturgy doesn't exhaust the activity of the church. Before they come to the liturgy, of course, they have to hear about Christ, and so preaching and the proclamation of Scripture. Scripture, obviously, nine. very important. Yes, we have crossed the Jordan River of eight into We've smacked nine. the table with our cloaks. Yeah, but that, that's an important line that very early in part two of the catechism, it will say, too, that before, before we come to the liturgy, there's some work. The liturgy is, in a certain way, kind of... Uh, this might sound right. It's like the professional prayer of the Catholic. There's so much that is meant to precede it before we can uh, engage in it properly. Now, there's got to be a, a right to the liturgy there's gotta be a preseason baptism. before you get to the championship series. Well, there is one. You know, in uh, think think RCIA for example, is you're dismissed before the priestly heavy lifting gets uh, in high gear because you're not ready to do it yet. So uh, there is a lot of preparatory formation and work that's supposed to take place before you can plug in fruitfully into the liturgy. 
Now, this might surprise people because we live in the age of service, right? And we say, people get confirmation and they say, Bishop, our students have performed 863 million hours of service for the homeless or whatever. Number 10 of Vatican II, Sacrosanct Concilium, says the aim and object of apostolic works, right? All this good service is that all who are made sons of God by faith and baptism should come together to praise God in the midst of the church, to take part in the sacrifice and eat the Lord's Supper. So the point of this apostolic service is to proclaim and be light for the world so that those people say, oh, what has lit you up? I want to be lit up too, and then lead them to the sacrifice. It's not really an end in itself. This, uh, there's a line that has got some traction since uh, the council says, the liturgy is the, that right before the one you read, Dennis, the liturgy is the summit toward which the activity of the church is directed, and mm-hmm. the, at the same time, it is the font from which all her power flows. So yeah, if you want to go out and do service, which you have to, that's a part of your christian contract and it's a part of your middle school curriculum and it might be that too uh how are you going to do that this is hard work how are you going to live a, a, a holy life of service and evangelization and, and all of that well you need um what did you say the the light or the power you need something that's going to energize you to go out and do those things because if you don't have a source for that then um it's not it's not going to be long lasting I remember being a bit shocked when I read something Mother Teresa said. She said, the poor will take everything you have because they're desperate, right? They will take your time. They will take your money. They will take your food. They will take whatever you have because a million poor people cannot be satisfied by one person. If you're going to serve the poor, you have to constantly go back and get recharged through prayer, through the Eucharist. And so all of this is to lead people to the Eucharist so they can receive from the source uh, as well. If there was some great thing on the top of a mountain, you'd come down from the mountain and say, hey, look up there. What is that? Look up there. Go up there. Let me invite you to come see this great You might take palace. a peek at the mountain. That's good. Yeah. Hey, okay. uh, <laughs> Quick Mother, change of subject. Uh, St. Teresa of Calcutta was on the cover of the October Adoramus Bulletin uh, for this reason. It was, a, it was a, uh, an entry on what's called the seriousness of the liturgy and the beauty of the liturgy written by Bishop Conley. And I was talking about how, you know, the liturgy is this, it was basically a commentary on this, that the liturgy is the source for apostolic uh, work. And I don't know enough about uh, Teresa of Calcutta as I should, but uh, I've heard, and somebody sent me stories about this. Do you know how many hours in liturgical prayer and devotional prayer she'd start before she went out into the streets of Calcutta? Three Three to four hours. Wow. She said, without beginning the day, with four hours of prayer in the chapel, mass and adoration, I wouldn't have the energy to go out and to serve. That's incredible. Wow. Yeah. Four hours? You kidding me? Uh, yeah. That's more than I do. <laughs> like, a week? By a lot. <laughs> I think. Well, it is. It is. We are going to get through finishing chapter one right now. Let, right. Let's do this. So what do we have? All this great stuff in the Eucharist. In order to get there, you have to invite people there. So is it's this also- number 10? Well, we're, we've, Just we've, been in, we've been in 10 for a while. Man, you got to tell me these things. And then the liturgy gives us the energy to do that. But, 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 if you're going to get that proper grace from the liturgy, you have to be properly disposed. If it's going to, it says in 11, if it's going to produce its full effects, they have to come with proper dispositions. So people have to know what they're doing. They have to be educated. They have to participate. There's a good line there that says, something more is required than mere observation of the laws of governing valid and licit celebration. Boy, wouldn't it be great if we could even do that much, right? But so let's get to that level. And then you have to say, yes, Lord Jesus, I offer myself as a sacrifice on the altar. Make me the new Adam as you are. Yeah. 
So, I mean, one thing we should note about that is it doesn't say all of a sudden that the laws governing valid and listed celebration are no longer important. They still are. Right. Absolutely. They're the baseline. They're minimum. the baseline. It's, uh, maybe this is your analogy, Dennis, unless you know, unless you know the rules of grammar, for example, you can't write good. You know, you gotta know. You gotta know or speak <laughs> well, either that is great. You, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the the goal of being a good writer isn't so that you know, and, and you know, the rules of grammar don't guarantee good writing. But unless you have at least that baseline of familiarity, your prose or poetry, or whatever it is, uh, won't uh, won't flourish. You can yeah. take the kids to the baseball practice all you want, but if you don't feed them and water them, what's the point, right? You need the basics. And then love them. So, yeah. So this line, make sure that people know are fully aware of what they are doing. Actively engaged in the right and enriched by its effects. That's the goal, right? So, yeah, Christ is doing all this great stuff and you should do it too. But if you're not doing it as fully as you should, then it's not going to have that effect on you. Actively participate in the pizza if you want to get the pizza in you, right? That's just how it goes. You can't just watch pizza, think about pizza. Now, that is something I'm good at. Have licit pizza. But Dennis, number yes. 12 says, the spiritual life, however, is not limited solely to participation in the liturgy. You've been making it sound this whole time like a liturgy, 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 and that's all you need. All you need is liturgy. Well, what else do you need? All these things that help you keep yourself going and where you can have your enthusiastic expression before liturgy, after and liturgy. Fails. So what are, what are those things? Usually we're talking about the devotional life of the church. But so Sacrosanctum Concilium did not get rid of devotions. Didn't? No. Yes, it doesn't. Yeah. So it says, it says explicitly. number 13, they're <laughs> to be highly commended, provided they accord with the laws and norms of the church and when they are ordered by the Holy See. So uh, they have a special dignity if they're lawfully approved and uh, in the mind of the church, but they should harmonize with the liturgical seasons, right? So the liturgy is the source. Then the devotions have all of this extension of the realities of the liturgy. So do your May devotions in May and your Advent devotions in Advent and your Easter devotions in Easter time. And they're that derived from sense. it and lead to it. And But then reminds, the liturgy by its very nature surpasses all of them. In fact, it says far surpasses all of them. A devotion is not the full real presence of Christ, as good as it is. So this is a line from a uh, liturgical movement figure, H.A. Reinhold, I think. Yes. Do you know what it is? The Second Vatican Council sought to... Put first things first, second things second, and peripheral things on the periphery. Yeah. yeah we, we're one liturgical brain again here, Jesse. Yeah, and I'm on the periphery. <laughs> <laughs> so if what people were doing before were the second things first, so devotions instead of liturgy, or even peripheral things first, reading the bulletin instead of concentrating on the liturgy, just reorder everything, make it accessible and understandable and therefore fruitful. Yeah, it seems like what happened in the immediate decades after the council is that the, in an attempt to restore the liturgy and the mass to its primary place, the devotions weren't placed on the periphery. They were kicked they, out of the building were, altogether. Yeah. Except for music, where we they kept devotional songs yeah. Yeah, for the most true. part yeah, at the true. beginning yeah. instead of the liturgical songs. Yeah. So in many ways, some of the preconciliar abuses they just took on different different forms, <laughs> right? Devotions are always trying to creep into the liturgical action because it's easier. It's the candy. It's eating dessert before the meal, right? Liturgical stuff requires it. Now, you have to have dessert, Jesse. Of Dennis course. Saying you, Except you in know, Lent. In fact, right? sometimes you just have to have it. I indulge in two desserts. <laughs> <laughs> so, right in, that was a good way to 
wrap that all up, Chris. H.J. Reinholds, first things first, second things second, peripheral things on the periphery. This would be good for your workout. This would be good for your work life. This would be good for your family. And, you know, parents who neglect their kids to do peripheral things instead of their primary duties, you would say they're not doing it right. So assemble everything hierarchically in the right order. Boy, if it only was that easy. Anyway, uh, let's answer the first question first and the second question second. So you guys know that we love the Liturgical Institute and we love everything that we do here, but you know who else loves the Liturgical Institute? Yeah, Bishop Robert Barron. And guess what he has to say about it? Well, I've known the Liturgical Institute from the very beginning. I was at Mundelein on the faculty in 2000 when it started. I knew Monsignor Mannion very well, who was the founder. Uh, Dr. McNamara, who was with him from the beginning, I've known. We've become good friends. I've spoken many times there. I've known all the faculty members. I've known many of the students. So I, I know from the ground up what the, um, the LI does. And they introduce people into the beauty of the church's intellectual tradition and liturgical tradition. And um, I don't know in the country a better place to go to get immersed precisely in that aesthetic dimension and the intellectual than the LI. So, you know, I'm a big fan. Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right. This question comes from Peter. Peter says, hi, Liturgy guys. Hi, Peter. I've learned so much from your podcast, and I'm concerned that during my child's baptism, it may not have been valid. If I'm concerned about this, how should I go about remedying it? This is how I would do it. If you have a concern, go to your pastor, tell him your concerns. Now, this question seems similar to, I mean, let's say an adult is going to come into the church and, you know, from, say, another Christian denomination. And so it's presumed that many of these have valid baptisms, but oftentimes they don't. And so I don't remember. For instance, Chris, what wouldn't make a baptism invalid in the Catholic vision? if If the person was baptized in the name of Jesus, or they didn't use water, or... They didn't use the full Trinitarian formula, for instance? Correct. How about or creator, the, redeemer, sanctifier? No, that would be invalid as well. Okay. okay so, so this is a legitimate question. Oh, like yeah, and it's be, a common question. Maybe okay. not in the way you've put it, but, but for adults who are coming into the church, uh, the, the, church who's, uh, the Catholic Church who's t- receiving them needs to ascertain that the baptism they've already received in Church XYZ out there is a valid formula. But if they meant to be baptized and their parents meant them to be baptized and the priest or minister meant them to be baptized, doesn't the church supply in this case? No, no. Ecclesia suplet is not for me to explain, but it's not what you think. Ecclesia suplet? May the church supply? Uh, um, Subjunctive, I think, is the word I was looking Uh, for. Dangling participle. No, no. So uh, the church supplies under much stricter conditions that you might be led to believe. That's kind she of like she can't it. supply something that's against divine law, for example. Right. Yeah, so if there's yeah, a little if there's a little mistake that's not doesn't affect validity. You might say, well, the church supplies because they know the priest meant to do it or something. But that's not what that means. Oh, then what does that's it mean? That means. I don't no, that's know. a different question. Okay. Um, so, no, it, it, you have to have more than the intention. To make a sacrament valid, you have to have valid matter, valid form, and valid intention. So even if I had va- valid matter and valid form, but I did not intend to do what the church does when she baptizes, for example, mm-hmm. then all the right matter and all the right form in the world won't make it valid. So that's what the church will investigate 
you know, say when an adult comes into the church or in Peter's case here, if he have, for some reason has a question about the validity of the sacrament, I should go to his pastor, tell him the reasons for his, you know, suspicions. And I would let the, the pastor at least do it himself or because this is what pastors do mm-hmm. in other conditions. And so well, like, for an adult, I would say there has to be an investigation into the fact and the validity of the baptism. And if serious doubts remain after that investigation, the verbiage might be a little bit different here in the code, then a conditional baptism is granted. But there has to be serious doubts after the investigation. So anyway, it's not as uncommon of a Couldn't question. Couldn't hurt to do it again, right? Well... No, there's a, if there's a doubt of the fact or the validity, then sure. it certainly needs to be to be done. Um, so, but there is kind of a, a general presumption that unless there's something that comes to the fore that gives you the reason to think it's invalid, it's presumed to be valid. Um, I don't know. That's how the church thinks about it. To my mind, was saying, well, why not use an abundance of caution to just cover all of your bases anyway, even yeah. if there's a small uh, matter of doubt. Uh, I think I think the response from the church would be, well, you know, uh, while we may be limited to the sacraments, God is not. And so if for some reason it ends up that it wasn't valid, well, God can still work his grace on you outside of the normal means. But in any case, that's a little bit I know about these invalidity questions. All right, Peter, thank you for emailing us. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Don't forget to donate on patreon.com slash liturgy. Because it doesn't go in the idiot fund. It funds the idiot liturgy guys. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you. And God bless. The liturgy guys is produced by the liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.